living. And so our routines and our schedules are different. School's out, work, schedule shift, vacations happen, church attendance alters. You never know who is going to preach. And so things change during the summer. So our wardrobes change. If you were like my kids last Monday, who walked outside at 9 o'clock in long sleeve shirts and pants, and then swapped yesterday to not want to wear either one of those because it was so hot. And so our wardrobes change, our diets are altered, fresh fruits and vegetables come on the scene, our gardens flourish, and ice cream and popsicles abound. Praise the Lord. And so our diets change, but during the summer, health and wellness also grows. This is the healthiest time of the year, whether that's because of our fresh fruits and vegetables, more time for exercise, or just wanted to look better in that summer wardrobe. We are often healthier during the summer months. And so I had a friend in college, and he was often lazy during uh, autumn, winter, but time, uh, late spring rolled around, he decided to work out, run a little bit, and eat healthier in time for summer. He called it shedding his winter coat. And so that mindset illustrates how we live differently when summer rolls around, right? And so we become different people almost when the weather changes. And today we start a short series in the book of Titus. So in this brief letter, Paul will address a number of different issues concerning how the church behaves, how it lives in opposition to this world. And so as our lifestyle changes as we become Christians, we move from one season, one style of life to the next. And our, our lifestyles as followers of Jesus must change. They must shift our routines, our habits, our uh, appetites, and maybe even our wardrobe and diet change when we start to follow Christ. And so as followers of Jesus, we must stand in sharp contrast to the broader culture around us. And so our pursuits don't line up with what the world chases after. Our speech doesn't mimic how the world talks. Our appetites aren't quenched by the same substances. Our behavior doesn't follow the actions and conduct of our worldly neighbors. Our priorities, our goals, our values aren't shaped by the world's systems, its displays, or its desires. We don't bow the same altar or worship the same shrines. We are to live different. And this is what Paul is giving to Titus and to the church there in Crete. He's giving them instructions to model a new and different form of humanity. And so when Jesus comes to redeem and liberate a people for his own possession, he will renew and transform us in such a way that we will discover a new way to be human. When Jesus saves us, our lives are turned upside down. Or more rightly, they're turned right side up. He puts us the way we are supposed to be all along. His death and his life provide a new definition of us of what a human being is supposed to be. As the exact imprint and image of God, Jesus is the true and living perfect man embodies this way of life. And we look at Jesus, we see what it means to be fully human. So in our natural state, we have life, but it's reductionistic, watered-down, paltry, subpar life. Yes, there's still a lot of good in this life, but it is bent and broken because of sin. The way we live as human beings today is not what God originally intended for his creation. It has been broken because of the fall into sin. It's not the best life. It's often ragged, unfulfilled, diseased, and paltry. 
It feels like life in deep winter. And so if you're, you're cooped up, you're cold, and everything around you is dead and dying. But when we were created for full, eternal, healthy, robust life in the sun, just as life on earth blooms and flourishes in the spring and in the summer, we too were made for the flourishing and good, healthy life. So, but sin and God's subsequent curse has severed the connection between us and that good life. And this is what Paul is going to teach Titus and teach us how to live the good life. And so a healthy and good life grows from an intimate connection, an intimate fellowship, an intimate relationship with God through his son, Jesus. That's why we sing, thank you for the blood that covers our sin and brings us back into this fellowship with God. This is what humanity was made for. The good life, the healthy life, the new life is what we're all seeking after. It's what all humanity is hoping for. And so when Jesus comes to earth, he shows us that new and true way to be human. He lives in perfect communion with the Father. We've seen this throughout the book of John as we've studied it for the past year and a half. He loves the Father. He obeys the Father. He serves others because he loves them perfectly as the Father does. He doesn't succumb to temptation because he knows that is not the way to live. Living in true obedience to love and follow God is the way of true, healthy living. He lives his life one of substance, of gravity, of solidarity. He knows that humanity is meant to live in shalom, the perfect wholeness of embodied relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others. Jesus is the only one to live this perfect spiritual, mental, and emotional life. And that's what every human life is supposed to be like. And that's what God is doing in salvation to conform us into that image, to transform us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light so we would be transformed to look like Jesus. This whole and rightsome, wholesome way to live. And so if you were to go online or go into your social media feeds, there is no shortage of self-help books, websites, programs, advice columns, podcasts, and infomercials to teach you how to achieve the healthy new you. And I spent way too long searching articles and tips and tricks None of them are worth sharing this morning. Because you can have all kinds of advice from some lifestyle guru, a life coach, a life transformation specialist, or a social media influencer. You can have all this advice about fashion, beauty, fitness, uh, meal planning, stress reduction, mental clarity, wellness, emotional, uh, imagine, uh, uh, managing emotional turmoil, how to speak better in public so you're not embarrassed stumbling over your words, there is always somebody online willing to teach you these things to get you to sign up for their newsletter and to buy their goop. There is somebody always willing to help you for a price of nineteen ninety-five in three easy payments. And we all know that physical, mental, and emotional health is important. We should all desire that for ourselves and our families. We should know and seek and follow advice for balanced diet and getting exercise, managing stress and getting more sleep and having flawless eyelashes and smooth skin. All those are important, but none of those experts, none of the influencers, none of the products that they harp are going to give you a brand new way to live. They may augment and help you out. They may give you a life hack to make life a little easier on a Thursday morning, but they can only influence or nudge your life. They cannot revolutionize it. Only Jesus can do that. Through his perfect obedience and his sacrificial death, he brings reconciliation to God and bring us into this new, 
life that has a new heart, a transformed mind, and being able to live as a model of a new humanity. And so let's turn our attention now to the book of Titus. And so we're going to start, we're going to read the uh, start at the end of chapter 1 because it gives us a little context of what comes after that as Paul instructs us. And so here, Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, writes to his son in the faith, Titus. And he says in chapter 1, verse 16, They, meaning the false teachers in Crete, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so Paul, here in the middle of his letter to Titus, he will write to Titus and write to this church about a new way to live, how to form a new humanity. And we'll see several aspects of what this life is supposed to be. So what does a healthy new human look like? Well, here are four aspects of that life. Number one, we see that this healthy new way of living is shaped by theology. It is shaped by theology. Look back at verse 1. Paul, writing to Titus, encourages him, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In the original Greek, not in our English translations, it's literally teach what accords with the sound doctrine. The definite article is there in front of it. The doctrine. And the doctrine here is synonymous with what he will say later as the trustworthy word. He says that in a couple places in the letter. There is a definitive set of teaching that a Christian must know, believe, and adhere to. And it must shape how we live our life. This doctrine, this theology is the gospel that we have sung about. Paul will explain this trustworthy word, this doctrine, in chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. You can see that here on the screen. And so here's how Paul gives one definition of the gospel. He says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this is a summary of the good life, of the trustworthy word, the doctrine that Titus was commanded to teach and to exemplify. It's God's grace, his goodness, his kindness that saves us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His work renews us, he regenerates us, and makes us new. So you want a healthy new life? Here's where you begin. You build your life on the trustworthy word of the gospel. You repent of sin and you follow Jesus. 
And Paul says this is a healthy doctrine. It is a sound doctrine. That's the word sound literally means healthy or hygienic. Paul says, Titus, he says to every preacher, every Christian, teach and live out the healthy, life-giving, disease-killing doctrine of the gospel. Just like your little bottom of Neosporin is an antiseptic, right? It kills bacteria, it acts as a disinfectant, it cleans. Sound teaching is the antiseptic to false gospels, to false gods and a false way of living. This doctrine kills the infection of sin and Satan and applies the healing blood of Jesus. We saw that when we quoted and we read Isaiah 53 just a moment ago. And so the healthy teaching brings things to life just as it kills the bad. Sound doctrine builds antibodies to anti-gods and anti-gospels. It provides nutrients for us to live, and it gives measured growth and development into maturity into Jesus. This sound teaching focuses on God's grace in the person and work of Christ. And so notice what Paul says to Timothy, or to Titus explicitly. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It's interesting that Paul just kind of glances over, hey, Titus, don't forget to teach sound doctrine, because Titus already knows that he's supposed to do that. But when Paul says, teach what accords with, he's saying what comes alongside, what benefits, what's in keeping with sound doctrine. He's saying that your life must, must match up with what the gospel teaches. We see this earlier when he introduces himself. Paul, at the very beginning of his letter, gives Titus this instruction, or he introduces himself this way. He says, Paul, a servant and apostle, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Same word there. What's in keeping with, what's according to. The gospel and godliness, the truth, matches how we live. And this is what he is getting to. Paul is sent by God. He's given Titus this instruction to teach and to preach the truth of the gospel. But that truth doesn't stand alone. It's not just for intellectual knowledge. It's not to make our heads bigger, to know more. That's part of it, but the head knowledge must get into our heart, our emotions, and into our hands and feet as we work and we move through this life. Truth in theology and doctrine is for living it's not just to win some Bible trivia contest or to get a little pin on our chest or to know these things, but to live them out. But the order here is important. We must know the truth, know the doctrine, know what God has done by grace through Jesus Christ first. He says later in chapter 2, but the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation then, once the grace has come to us, then we live out, saying no to ungodly things and yes to righteous things. The order is important here. We are not saved by our work, but the works come after that salvation. That order matters. Grace informs and leads to righteous behavior. Good behavior doesn't merit or engender grace or salvation. Grace and belief and trust lead to how we live. Belief begets behavior. Faith informs our function. Doctrine determines our deeds. That order has to be there. And you can see the disconnect here that the work and the way we live our life, the conduct of our life has to match up with what we believe because a lot of times it doesn't. We can see that, and this is why we read verse 16 in chapter 1. 
Read that again. He says, they, the false teachers, profess to know God. They think they know the truth, but they deny him by their works. We're all aware of teachers or preachers or Christians who speak about God one way and live and act another. We call those hypocrites, two-faced, duplicitous. They're saying one thing and living completely opposite to that. And so what Paul is saying here, the way they live deny their theology. They say they believe, they say they know, they say they want the grace of God, but the way they act, the way they conduct themselves, the way they talk, completely reveals that they're false. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit. Try saying that in a politically correct culture today. But true Christians, true humans live consistently. How we behave shows what we profess and know about God and the gospel. Sound doctrine is for teaching that conforms biblical witness that is useful for everyday life. And so Paul will illustrate it elsewhere as that we are to live worthy of the gospel, that our lives should be in keeping with the gospel. And what he's doing is using a word picture here like a, a scale, like a balance. You know, you've been to the old butcher who has this, the weights on the scale, so he puts the weight on one scale and it shifts up and he measures out enough meat to balance that scale, right? This is what the, the, the word worthy of, in keeping with, according to, means. That the gospel is on one side of the scale and our lives are on the other. And those two things should not be out of balance. Those should be in balance. So when somebody sees us as Christians, as a church, they see us and they see the gospel being lived out. Our lives match what the gospel teaches. So if our lives weigh the same as the gospel, we know the good news and we build our lives upon it. We're shaped by theology, shaped by doctrine. So we know it and we live it. The Puritan Thomas Perkins says, theology is the science of living blessedly forever. And so this idea to live out the gospel is not just for the here and now, it is for ever. It's for eternity. It's a healthy life built on the foundation of Jesus and his teaching. But again, that doesn't stay intellectual. It's for everyday life. It live, is lived out practically. We build on the solid foundation. We're shaped by theology. But what does it look like? What are some descriptions of it? And so this is where we come to our second point. What's a flourishing, healthy life look like? What's one controlled by sobriety? It's a life that's controlled by sobriety. If you read through verses 2 through 10, we see Paul address six different groups. He addresses old men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves or servants, and Titus. Six groups. And he addresses all of these groups to show us that there's no position, no age that is exempt from the call to a godly life. We're all called to this. And there are at least 25 characteristics named in this passage. And don't worry, we're not going to cover them all. And so we notice a pattern emerging here, though. There is a direct call for sober, rational, reasonable, self-controlled behavior. Why does Paul keep harping back on this word, self-control and sobriety? Well, we have to understand where Paul and Titus have been ministering. Titus has been left on Crete, and Crete is the third largest island in the Mediterranean, south of Greece. So you can pull out your Google Maps, you can find it there. But in the, uh, 
ancient world, it was the crossroads of the Mediterranean. So it was a huge, uh, lots of ports, uh, lots of commerce would go back and forth. It's a crossroads of nations and of the economy of the Mediterranean Sea. And with that, Crete was notoriously wicked and evil place in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for liar was kretizo, which literally means to be a Cretan, to be a liar. Treachery, greed, mercenaries, violence, sexual corruption filled this culture. If you look back in chapter 1, Paul actually quotes one of the Cretans, one of their own poets and prophets. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How would you like it if somebody said about Chattanooga? Uh, They're always telling lies, beating people up, and ripping people off. Yeah, they're fat, drunk, good-for-nothing, sexually deviant, hedonist, who only look out for themselves. I don't think that's going to win us any more um, top ten places to live. But that's where Titus, that's where this church is, is in a place that's filled with violence and drunkenness, sexual impropriety, a society that's infatuated with lies, with self-seeking. This is where Titus has landed. This is his job to build up the church and to point leaders into this church. How would you like that job? And Titus is telling those people who've come out of this culture to live differently, to live in stark contrast to their neighbors, to their family even. Paul instructs Titus and the church to live differently from the culture and society around them just as he does to us today. And so this call to be different It's not a special dress code or way to style your hair or some clothes that you wear. It's a difference in character. And it's a difference in control. And so over and over again, he repeats this call for self-control. Look at just a few of them here. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, which means clear of mind, able to make sound good judgments, dignified, meaning they're not frivolous or silly. They are worthy of respect. And they are to be self-controlled. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, means controlled in their actions, not slanderers in control of their tongue, or slaves to much wine, control of their appetites. Young women, in verse 4, are to love their husbands to be self-controlled. Younger women, not to live frivolous lives and neglect of their families. And then bluntly, verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And have you, how many of you know a younger man who needs more self-control? Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Control over yourself in your work environment. Over and over and over again, Paul urges and instructs us to exercise control over our bodies, our appetites, our words, and our outward behavior. The Christian is one who can control himself in a world gone crazy. Jerry Bridges is helpful here, the author and speaker. He says that self-control consists of two pieces. He says it's first, soundness of mind, sensible level-headedness, and two, the inner strength of character to moderate or temper the gratification of our own desires. So sound judgment enables us to determine what we should do, and inner strength provides the will to do it. So we know what to do, and we actually go out and carry that thing out. It's the ability to avoid excess, to stay within reasonable bounds. It's sorting the good from the bad, the best from the better, determines the boundaries of our moderation in action, in thoughts, in emotions. 
It's not allowing the permissible things or the sinful things to take control of us, that we have control over ourselves because we can think clearly. And Paul, remember, he wraps up the fruit of the Spirit with this characteristic, self-control, right? And it's interesting that he puts self-control last because I think he puts it last because without self-control, all the other eight pieces of the fruit can't come to bear. You can't be faithful without control over your time and your self-interest. You can't be kind or gentle if you don't have control over your anger. You can't be peaceful without control over contempt or your desire to win. You can't be patient without control over your irritation and your hastiness. See, self-control allows all the other pieces of fruit to flourish in our lives. And so Paul is instructing us as Christians to keep control over ourselves in order to obey Jesus and not the sinful, selfish pleasures of this world. D.G. Keel, who's an author, he wrote a book in the 80s about self-control. He says, self-control is the beginning of self-mastery, is to be mastered by Christ, to yield to his lordship. So the secret of self-control is to be be controlled by another, is to be controlled by Jesus through his spirit. The call for self-control is the call to come and die to put our selfish, fleshly, sinful desires to death and to bring godly passions to bear, that those things would flourish, to control our sinful desires, to be master over all those things so we can present ourselves as living sacrifices to Jesus. This is why Paul talks so much about sobriety here, to be sober-minded, to be level-headed, not irrational, not under the influence of something, someone, or some ideology. So the situation in Crete and in our day was a culture out of control. Violence, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity were rampant. I think if we were to drop in on Crete, it would look a lot like our Western culture today. So the trend in their day and in ours was to feed your appetites, right? No, don't suppress your appetites. Live your best you. Find the truth that's inside of you and live and express yourself to the fullest. To live your best life is to give yourself to your innermost desires. That's the opposite of self-control. And this is why Paul keeps pressing in on this idea to walk with sobriety, clear-headedness that results in good and righteous behavior. Sobriety is serious living. That's why older men are to be dignified. How many of you have met an older man who doesn't act his age, who doesn't dress like he should? So when we think of sobriety, we often think it's the opposite of drunkenness, right? It's being under the influence of alcohol. And when our minds go there for a good reason, the drunk doesn't have control over his body, his words, his emotions, or his inhibitions. Someone under the influence of drink or drugs doesn't have a clear head. He's not stable. He's not in control of himself. And Crete was a society obsessed with alcohol. And I would argue ours is becoming just the same. Paul emphasizes sobriety in terms of alcohol here. Elders aren't supposed to be drunkards. And I like how he says older women aren't to be influenced by much wine. Those are just obvious examples here, this this drunkenness. But what Paul is saying here, we're supposed to keep our heads in every aspect of life. So over our appetites, not controlled by gluttony. Oh, just one more piece of cake will be just fine. My gluttonous appetite on Memorial Day was not to have four cups of ice cream, just to have three cups of homemade ice cream. I was trying to contain myself. It's not to be controlled by drink 
or by drugs or by mushrooms or CBD or edibles or all this stuff that's floating around in our culture. It's control over our appetites, control over how we manage our time, not binge-watching all 18 episodes of the next series. It's not wasting time and procrastinating. It's doing what we're supposed to be doing to be faithful. It's having control over our sex lives and not hooking up, not sleeping around, not swiping whichever way you're supposed to swipe, not indulging in pornography. It's being controlled in our sexual lives. It's control over our fears and anxieties. It's not running around like a bunch of people, like like Chicken Little, like the sky is falling. We are controlled in how we think because we're sober-minded because we know that the sky will not fall until Jesus falls from the sky. That's what people uh, controlled by Jesus are like. They're not out of control. They're not hysterical. They have control over their anger. They're not controlled by rage or contempt or the need to be right or to retaliate or to gossip. We're not controlled by materialism. We're not you know, swept up by the latest trends or live a decadent and bougie lifestyle. We're controlled in every area of our life. We're sober. We're clear-minded. We're focused. We're following Jesus rather than our own impulses, our own desires, our own passions. And what an image it would be for the church of Jesus Christ to be under self-control, under the control of Christ, and not controlled by the whims of culture. The new humanity, the new way of living is not being pulled by the fleshly appetites of food, drink, or sex. We're not riled up by the voice of the violent online mob. We're not sucked into the maelstrom of materialism. We aren't pressured to lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead. No, it sounds impossible. But we have to remember that we're controlled by sobriety because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of of control and of calmness. He guides and leads us to all truth and to live out just like Jesus. And more importantly, he sends the Holy Spirit to us, but he also sends other people around us to help us. This leads us to our third point. The context for this healthy life is not just living by ourselves, but to be discipled as family. And so notice here that Paul is talking what looks a whole lot like a household. Older men and women, younger men and women, parents and children. He already says to Titus in chapter 1, it says, I, Titus, am a father to you. You, Titus, are my child in a common faith. So this idea, this relationship of a father to a son, a mother to a daughter, is key in how we live life controlled by the Spirit and founded on theology. So it's no accident here that he talks to older men and women, and notice he doesn't give an age limit here. He says the older ones are the ones who are a little more mature in the faith. They represent a generation of fathers and mothers in the faith who have gone through life and now is turning around to raise up a younger generation in their own household, but also in the household of faith. So the older saints here are to be models of good works, models of sound character, to be dignified, someone worthy of respect. And this is what he's talking about in chapter 1 when he talks about appointing elders in the church, to appoint leaders in the church. So Titus was to appoint leaders who would be worthy to follow. And the same descriptions to older men are the same descriptions given to elders. Now, not every man is supposed to be an elder, but every man is supposed to move towards those things. And so are the older women. That's why he says, likewise, in verse 4. That all of us are to be dignified, sober, in control of ourselves, living lives worthy of imitation. 
I don't know if you've ever looked to generations above you, no matter how old you are or how young you are, you look at those people who are a little older and like, yeah, I want to be like that guy when I grow up. Or you look at somebody else and like, yeah, I don't want to be like that guy when I grow up. You know, when I'm filling the blank age, I'm not going to dress like that. And that guy shouldn't either. I see that lady over there and I want to raise my family like she did. This is what Paul is getting to here, that the older are to train and disciple and to bring up the younger. He tells that explicitly in verse 4. To the older women, teach or train the younger women. And the word for train here is unique. It's not get up in a formal public setting with your three-ring notebook and everybody in a classroom in, in desks and chairs and to teach for 35 minutes. It's not that kind of teaching. The idea behind this teaching is advice or encouragement given by private word and example. The older woman here is coming alongside the younger woman to show them how to be a godly woman, a godly wife, a worker, and a servant in the church. There's indication here that the younger women in Crete were just, uh, just living licentious, lazy, neglecting their families, just devoted to frivolous living. And so Titus is supposed to encourage the older women to teach the younger women to how, how this is how you live a godly life. And I find it interesting here that Titus is not to, supposed to teach the younger women. He delegates that to the experts, to the older women who know how to raise a family, who knows how to be married for decades, who knows how to care for children, who knows how to balance work and domestic life. So Titus gives the instruction to older women to train the younger women. And Titus has the same responsibility to train the younger men as well. And these relationships show us the value of discipleship. The older, more mature Christians come alongside a younger believer with the intention to teach the Bible, Christian morality, and healthy living with their words and their example. We need more discipleship in this church. We need older men and women to come alongside to teach the younger generations. And I'm not just talking about the younger generations back there. I'm talking about the younger generations right here. And so the younger generations need to know how and what it looks like to be married for 50 years to the same spouse. We need to know how it is to endure the hard toddler's life without losing our minds. Not speaking from experience at all. We need to know how to raise teenagers who won't talk to us and say they hate us. We need to know how to have a work ethic that allows us to grow in our career, but also that displays integrity, character, and balances family and work life. We need to know how to read the Bible. We need to know how to lead in the church as a deacon, as a small group leader, as a prayer warrior. We need examples to live soberly and dignified and, in un and without undue anxiety in a world gone crazy. We need to know how to live with contentment in a world obsessed with material gain. Paul isn't advocating here a 10-week formal course on a Wednesday night. No, he's saying that this should happen organically in the church, that we come alongside one another. We invite one another to each other's homes. We go to the grocery store together. We go and run errands together. We call somebody, hey, my water heater's broken. Can you come help me fix it? And the older man comes over and he teaches them how to fix the water heater, but also how to love his wife better. To so encourage each other in struggling marriages to go out to dinner, to go on weekend trips, to go live life together so that the older rubs up against the, the younger to teach them how to behave, to be dignified, to be sober, and to know Jesus. 
We need our encouragement by words, but most effectively by our actions and example. So older believers, this is your challenge this morning, to find younger believers in our church and teach them what it looks like to live the good and healthy life. Even through your mistakes and your trials and your troubles, teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. But this life, this healthy life, is not lived just in the confines of a local church, kind of shut off somewhere. It is displayed to the world. And it is fourthly, this life is displayed winsomely. When the world outside of here looks into us, what do they see? And I hope that they see a life that is in congruence with what we believe. We should model life that is healthy and attractive to others. So when people see us as a family, as a church, they're going to look at that and say, what's going on over there? I want that kind of life. That's what Paul is getting here. He's using, and I use this word winsome, which means charming or pleasant or appealing. It's someone you want to have around. <clears throat> so their way of life and their behavior is attractive to others. This is why we must display this new way of living to the world. And we're never going to live it out perfectly, but the trajectory of our lives, the thrust of our lives must be in this direction, to bring people into the gospel by how we act, speak, and live. And we know this from three so-that clauses in the passage. And really quickly here, he says, verse 5, Young women were to be self-controlled, live their domestic life in such a way, so that the word of God may be, not be reviled. Verse 8, Titus was to speak and preach, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, uh, servants were to behave with righteous self-control, so that in everything they may adorn the gospel or the doctrine of God our Savior. Again, these three phrases here teach us that the gospel is made attractive to the world in such a way that it draws people in and it doesn't malign or blaspheme the gospel. And so he does this in three ways. We'll do this really quickly and we'll come back to this a little bit next week. So the first piece of evidence here is the way that we live in our families. If you read through the descriptions of what older women are to teach younger women, you're kind of scratching your head going... What is he getting at here? They're to love their husbands and children. They're to work at home. And they're to be submissive to their husband. I don't know if I like where this is going. Is this the handmaiden's tale coming out? Where are we going with this? But what Paul is getting at here, and we'll break this down a little more next week. What Paul is getting here is saying that our families as Christians must look different than the world. We should see marriages that look like the gospel where the husband leads with love and self-sacrifice and the wife submits in respect and love. We see a husband and wife who love each other and raise their children in such a way that looks different from the world. They're not pushing them into uh, some kind of pursuit of music or sports, but they're pushing their children to look and love Jesus and his church. Basically, when someone sees our families, our marriages, and how we parent our children, and go, and what makes that marriage thrive? What's the secret to, uh, have you been married for so long? What are you doing to raise your kids in such a way? How can you keep your head when everything is falling apart? And you can, when they ask those questions, you can beckon them in, you're like, you really want to know? Are you sure you really want to know? Because the answer is we put Jesus first, and we act with self-control because he knows he's in charge, and this is the best way to live. 
So our families are to be an example of the gospel to draw people in. Secondly, he talks about Titus's preaching and teaching and his model in all respects of his life is to line up. So when people hear us talk about church, talk about Jesus, talk about the gospel, they're going to listen to what we say, but more importantly, they're going to watch how we act. Are we the parent who's yelling through the chain link, fix, chain link fence at our kid's ball team? Are we just throwing all the political nonsense around and all oh, the world's falling apart? Are we people who live with self-control, who control our anger, who love our neighbor, who waves the pride flag? We live and we speak in such a way that people cannot bring any charge against us that it will stick. And then last, he points out how we work. So at the conclusion of this section, he says that we are to behave in the workplace in such a way that adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel look good. We come alongside and we, people see us work that we're working with respect toward our superiors. We're carrying out our task. We're developing a worth ethic. We're, we're truthful. We're honest. We show up on time. We benefit the company and not ourselves. Why? Because we serve Jesus and not the company. The attitudes and habits we take in the workplace should make the gospel real to those around us. So in all of these areas, how we, how we speak in public, how we act and conduct ourselves as a family, and how we work in the office or the classroom recommends the gospel to one another. We're called to embody a new way of living, so our life is in keeping with it. It weighs the same as the gospel, one that is controlled. So if you are a Christian today, your season of life has changed. No longer do we live as we once did. We can't follow the course and habits of this world. We've taken on a new way of life. Our lives are to be in keeping with godliness and the gospel. So the health and wellness industry is thriving this summer, hoping to capitalize on everybody's desire for a healthy and new you. And so let's use our influence for free to show people a better way to live. So let's model in every respect of our life the glory of the grace and the goodness of God. And so while the world goes crazy, out of control around us, let us live sober, self-controlled, humble lives. And so people will be like, hey, what's your deal? How can you live like that? Are you even human? Are you from this planet? And you can say, well, yes, this is the way to live. This is what life is always meant to be. This is real life. Following Jesus under his control, we've mastered ourselves and we serve him. This is the healthy and new way to be a human. Let's pray.